Hello, I'm Brett Dillon, and this is The Movie Chronicles. This episode, I'm developing a biographical theme, and we start with the documentary Charlie, The Life and Art of Chaplin. Director and script, Richard Schickel. Director of photography, Thomas Olbrecht, Chris Danton, Simon Fanthorpe, Rob Goldie, John Halliday, Ross Keith, and Graham Smith. Editor, Brian McKenzie. Actors, Charlie Chaplin, Sidney Pollack, Bill Irwin, Norman Lloyd, Johnny Depp, Robert Downey Jr., Woody Allen, Michael Chaplin, Geraldine Chaplin, Richard Attenborough, Martin Scorsese, Milos Forman, Marcel Marceau, Sidney Chaplin, Claire Bloom, Sid Chaplin, Winston Churchill, Charles Inslee, Edna Perviance, and Mac Swain. Charlie is an overview of the career of Charlie Chaplin. It leaves some issues unresolved, such as why J. Edgar Hoover hated him. This is a complicated issue, so I can understand the film avoiding it. In its most simplistic form, the hatred was caused by Chaplin campaigning on social justice issues. Hoover thought this was dangerous because Charlie was popular enough to actually make a change. We also never learn what the American response to Chaplin being refused re-entry into the States was, which can be summed up as a general public response, Charlie who? Chaplin set himself up in part because he never became a U.S. citizen. The film's importance is in its choice of footage. In that regard, it is a remarkably well-curated work. I believe this may be the last hagiographic work about Chaplin, until there is a backlash. Chaplin was well-beloved in his period, but seen as part of a larger scene. Movies at the time were the fish and chips of the entertainment scene, easily disposable and quickly forgotten, requiring a stream of new product every week. His star rose into the sound era, where many of his contemporaries fell by the wayside. Harold Lloyd kept making movies, but his character, Glasses, had trouble making the transition. Buster Keaton was stiffed by his management, and the other greats were either dead or sidelined for younger and cheaper performers. Charlie endured, and his films kept circulating until, by the 60s, he was synonymous with silent film among the general public. His films are what they thought silent film was. A backlash is on the way. The internet is able to distribute much of the surviving work from the era. This allows us to discover from whom Chaplin copied and who copied Chaplin. More importantly, with a large body of work, we can now judge Chaplin's theatre of cruelty and his maudlin attitude within the context of the time. This usually finds his work wanting. Critics loved this film. After all, it was directed by one of their own. As you can work out, I have never lionized Chaplin, nor will I deny he was a comic genius. Critic Owen Gleiberman described the film best when he wrote, The nature of silent comedy was to elevate its heroes into myths. But after Charlie, 
I can't wait to see Chaplin's movies again, this time to glimpse the man on the other side of the icon. The movie had the same effect on me. As propaganda for Charlie, it did its job. Actor, director and sibling, Sid Chaplin, was born on March the 16th, 1885, in London, England, and he died in 1965. He was the half-brother of the more famous Charlie, for whom he served as business manager when his own career began to falter. Hannah, his mother, was unmarried when she gave birth to Sid. She married Charles Chaplin Sr., and Sid adopted the Chaplin name. Hannah had a mental collapse, and the boys, Sid and Charlie Jr., were in the Cuckoo Schools, a place to house the children of destitute parents. Sid was placed in a course to train young boys to become seamen. After his training, he worked on several ships, yet he had an ambition to work in the entertainment business. In 1905, the brothers managed to appear on stage together. Sid's break came in 1906 when he contracted to the Fred Carno Company, Carno's London Comedians. For two years, he worked hard to bring Charlie into the company. Charlie never achieved Sid's level of fame in the company Sid was principal comedian. The Carno Company toured the United States. Charlie used the opportunity to negotiate a film contract and suggested Sid join in. Sid arrived in Hollywood in October 1914 and made a number of films. A Submarine Pirate was the second most popular film for the company in 1915. By 1916, however, Sid realized he was wasting his time trying to compete with his brother. Instead, he set about getting a better contract for his brother. This was successful enough that his brother hired him on as a business manager. Here, Sid had one failure. The music publishing venture was a complete failure. This was more than made up by his success at merchandising Chaplin products. Sid did continue to appear in movies for a time, making his last appearance in 1921. In 1919, he launched the first privately owned domestic airline company. This folded in 1920 when Sid thought the government regulations were getting to be too much to handle. The airline was the first to have a showroom for their airplanes, flew the first Los Angeles to San Francisco and back commercial flight, and Charlie took his first flight on one of Sid's planes. In 1924, Sid returned to acting, which led to his appearance in The Better All, 1926, the second Warner Brothers film to have a Vitaphone soundtrack, and, some historians contend, the first film with spoken dialogue. Actor Geraldine Chaplin was born on July the 31st, 1944, in the USA the daughter of Charlie Chaplin and his wife, Una. Geraldine observed, I thought it'd be easy to get into the movies as Charles Chaplin's daughter, and I suppose it was, except I wasn't much good as an actress, really terrible at the beginning. To which, I can only add, she got better, much better. Actor Edna Purviance was born on October the 21st, 1895, in Nevada, and she died in 1958. Edna appeared in more films with Charlie Chaplin than any other actress. Chaplin liked her so much that, after she retired from the screen, he kept her on the payroll. He was romantically linked with her, yet, in typical Chaplin style, his wandering eyes terminated that relationship. 
She was working as a stenographer in San Francisco when Charlie approached her in 1925 to work at SNA Studio with him. She later recalled, Mr. Chaplin asked me if I would like to act in pictures with him. I laughed at the idea, but agreed to try it. I guess he took me because I had nothing to unlearn, and he could teach me in his own way. I want to tell you that I suffered untold agonies. Eyes seemed to be everywhere. I was simply frightened to death. But he had unlimited patience in directing me and teaching me. Actor Max Swain was born on February the 16th, 1876, in Utah, and he died in 1935. Mac was interested in the entertainment business from a very young age. At age six, he created an act which he performed in the family barn. At eight, he stole his mother's sheets to build a circus tent. At 15, he ran away to join a minstrel show. This didn't last long because his mother quickly pulled him home by the ear. In the 1900s, Mac formed the Mac Swain Company. This troupe was popular enough that in 1907, Max was able to buy the Aliski Theatre in Santa Cruz, California, and rename it Swain's Theatre. This proved to be a not-so-great investment. By 1913, the audiences were drying up in preference to cinema. Mac was resistant to following the money and opined cinema was an inferior art form to theatre, buffoonishly echoing the phrase of his social superiors. By in 1913, Max Sennett lured him away from the vaudeville to appear in film. At the Sennett studio, he shared a dressing room with Fatty Arbuckle. Sennett did not seem to like Mac all that much. He also didn't like that English upstart Charlie Chaplin. His solution was to team Mac and Charlie. The unlikely pairing formed a friendship that endured down through the decades. Chaplin later claimed he created his tramp character from rummaging through the Arbuckle Swain dressing room. The baggy trousers belonged to Fatty, and the moustache was one of the fake ones Swain used. Chaplin left the studio in 1914, but not before the pair created the world's first feature-length comedy, Tilly's Romance, 1914. Swain created the Ambrose character with his walrus moustache, who appeared in a number of shorts during the silent era. He was also frequently paired with Chester Conklin. During this period, he created the first movie-within-a-movie film, 1915's A Movie Star. History was big on flag-waving by people who should know better. On. February the 5th, U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell presented to the UN the case for invading Iraq. The Bush administration misled him as to the real facts. February the 15th, massive anti-protests expressed the world's dismay at the possibility of an invasion of Iraq. March the 17th, President George W. Bush presented an ultimatum to Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein. You have 24 hours to get out of town. Few question whether or not Bush has been watching too many westerns, let alone understands the word diplomacy. March the 20th, the Iraq war began. April the 9th, US forces seized control of Baghdad, ending the rule of Saddam Hussein, friend 
of the USA. May the 1st. President George W. Bush gave his mission accomplished speech on board an aircraft carrier. His incompetent handling of the situation he has stirred up turns Iraqi hatred for Hussein into a hatred for the USA, who are now seen not as a liberating force, but as an invasion. The war continues on for several years with nothing accomplished except death and destruction, all of which were avoidable by diplomacy. The only accomplishment was the US government's successful telling of lies to hide its incompetence. December the 13th, the US Army captured Saddam Hussein. Time for a sea change as we enter the horse racing stable for Seabiscuit. Director and script, Gary Ross. Director of photography, John Schwartzman. Editor, William Goldenberg. Music, Randy Newman. Actors, David McCulloch, Jeff Bridges, Chris Cooper, Michael Angarano, Cameron Bowen, Noah Luke, Ed Lauter, Sam Bottoms, Toby Maguire, Royce A. Applegate, Dylan Christopher, and William H. Macy. One thing I'll say about this film, as a history, it is certainly inclusive. As a film, it's far too long, and with most of the material being unimportant to the narrative. This is a film showing how far out of touch with nature the people of the USA are when they could bet on the running of terrified horses. It also shows how politically naive the general population are that they could see a horse, the symbol of a horse owner and therefore of the elite who were riding out the depression, as a symbol of hope. Everyone loves an underdog, this film is telling us, except the underdog is only such among the elite. Among the general population, the underdog is actually one of the elite. The most pernicious element of this film is its use of relative wealth as a metric of one's human rights. In a very long prologue, we get an anti-mechanization message. Two characters, one is a horse whisperer on the open plains, the other is a pushbike repairman who sees the horseless carriage as the vehicle of the future. He becomes a car salesman and is successful enough to fill a horse stable with racing cars. It's a heavy-handed literal symbol of the replacement of horses by vehicles. The salesman loses his son in a car crash. That is his first sadness. The salesman is Charles Howard. The horse whisperer is Tom Smith. In 1929, the stock market crashed in the USA and created the Great Depression around the world. The film tells us $10 billion of market value is gone. And this is not quite true. $10 billion of non-existent value can never be lost. It would be more accurate to say $10 billion of stock market fraud was revealed, or the amount of value artificially placed on the stocks and shares exceeded the ability of workers to create that value. While this is true, it also seems to place the blame on the workers rather than the people artificially inflating the value of the shares. The elite 
never blame their own unfitness to rule. They responded as you would think. Lazy workers were fired to reduce the wage bill rather than to get workers to increase in production by hiring more. The elite wanted to consolidate the gains they already had. This action only exacerbated the situation for everyone else. There was a national migration of workers to try and find work, which in turn decimated communities and ripped apart local economies. Johnny, aka Red, earns money for his family by riding horses. His parents abandon him to a horse trainer so they can find employment for themselves. Six years, and we're still in the prologue, Red takes up boxing to try and make ends meet. He ends by being blinded in one eye. The races have become dirty, and to keep employed, he has moved to Mexico. 1933. At this point, the narrative proper begins, and hopefully the audience realize we last saw Red in 1927, two years before the Great Depression. His tale of depression precedes the Depression, but is disguised as if the U.S. financial difficulties began with the Depression, which, to be fair, they did. For the elites. As the U.S. has banned alcohol and gambling, the elites now go to Mexico for their fun. Charles Howard, the car salesman, just to bring you up to speed, is in town because he wants to buy a racehorse. Tom Smith, the horse whisperer, is also in town. Charles hires Tom to help him buy a horse. It is in Mexico that Tom first sees Red, a down-on-his-luck jockey with a fighting spirit. And now, roughly 43 minutes into the film, Seabiscuit is introduced. Seabiscuit has been raised as a loser. Too small, bad-tempered, hard to handle, and selling cheap. Tom sees the potential and Charles buys. The debut is at the Santa Ana track. Remember the Alamo? Red doesn't follow the game plan and they lose. It's, it's a disaster. With a little more training, Seabiscuit starts winning and the press take notice. This is the little horse who could. Seabiscuit becomes a symbol of hope for the US unwashed. There is much that is truly ugly about this characterization. The USA caused the Great Depression by gambling on the ability of the working classes to meet the voracious wants of the elite. As a nation, it now tries to place itself in the victim's role, which rightly belongs to every other country in the world. On the US level alone, this is the elite trying to pretend we're all in this together when really it's just bread and circuses to distract the workers from taking the revenge the elite richly deserve for creating the situation in the first place. The top racing horse in the USA is War Admiral. Charles wants a race and even offers a $100,000 purse to lure his owner out onto the track. Consider for a moment. Millions are starving, and Charles offers $100,000 to a rich man who doesn't need the money. 
the elite live in a bubble that this film doesn't dare criticize. To prove he's worthy to make the challenge against War Admiral, Seabiscuit is matched in a high-stakes race. Still no dice. Charles decides to spin this as cowardice on the part of War Admiral's owner. Seabiscuit follows War Admiral to whatever track he is at. This is the tactic that ultimately wins. In the interim, Red breaks his leg and is no longer able to ride. As a narrative device, just in case we remember all the starving people, it is used to show Charles as a good employer. He stays at the hospital, loans Red money, and keeps him on at the stable. A replacement rider is found for the big race of 1938, Seabiscuit versus War Admiral, with War Admiral the favourite. Maybe Seabiscuit isn't the symbol of hope the film has been portraying. Seabiscuit wins the big race, but pulls up lame in his next race. Red, also lame, helps Seabiscuit to recover. The finale has Red and Seabiscuit on the racetrack again, but at the risk of Red's life, to infuse some drama into the situation. This finale mixes in a profound way the U.S. ideals of capitalism and consumerism. The horse and jockey are product. The adulation of the crowd is the consumer buying into this fantasy. The loser in all of this is the horse and jockey who have sold their autonomy to become a product. Director Gary Ross was born on November the 3rd, 1956, in Los Angeles, California, USA. Gary's father is scriptwriter Arthur A. Ross, known for The Creature from the Black Lagoon, 1954. Gary's first script was for Big, 1988. The work of his I most appreciate, however, was his directorial debut, Pleasantville, 1998. Sadly, he is best known at the moment for the Hunger Games 2012 and Ocean's 8 2018, two films that fall well below his previous high standards. Gary observed, Family entertainment is really very necessary in our culture. You need to take your family to the movies. Director of photography John Schwartzman was born on October the 18th, 1960, in Los Angeles, California, USA. John attended the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts by getting Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas to write letters of recommendation after beating them in a game of risk. He graduated in 1985 and has been a very busy boy ever since. Composer Randy Newman was born on November 28, 1943, in Los Angeles, California, USA. Randy has three uncles who were Hollywood composers, Alfred, Lionel, and Emile, which is a good beginning for a musician. He studied music at the University of California, but dropped out, completing the degree in 2021. Randy became a professional songwriter at the age of 17. This led to a happy collaboration in the mid-1960s with the band Harper's Bazaar, who were happy to perform his compositions, after he'd composed them, of course. In 1968, Randy began to record his own material for himself and let others cover his material. He noted, Stay away from drugs. They're not worth it. I've tried, but there's none of them that's worth it. 
Randy's earliest scoring work was for TV. This began in 1962. His success writing pop songs dragged him into writing songs for teen movies. He didn't write a complete film score until 1971's Cold Turkey. Today, he is best known for his work on Pixar Disney movies. Of this phase of his career, he said, I do movies because I love writing for orchestra, though it scares me, and the money is good. I can't make a living doing just albums. Times are too difficult now for geriatric artists. He summed up his oeuvre as, My music has a high irritation factor, but I prefer eccentricity to the bland. Births were the apostrophe of the year. On. January the 4th. Jaden Martell, the US actor. August the 17th. The Kid Leroy, Aussie rapper. September the 3rd. Jack Dylan Grazer the U.S. actor. Death was a design flaw of the system. On. April the 2nd, Edwin Starr, the U.S. singer, born 1942. April the 21st, Nina Simone, the U.S. singer, born 1933. May 14th, Robert Stack, the U.S. actor, born 1916. June the 12th, Gregory Peck, US actor, born 1916. June the 29th, Catherine Hepburn, US actor, born 1907. July the 6th, Buddy Epson, US actor-dancer, born 1908. August the 30th, Charles Bronson, the U.S. actor, born 1921. October the 20th, Jack Elam, the U.S. actor, born 1920. And finally, November the 12th, Jonathan Brandis, the U.S. actor, born 1976. Next episode... I'm going whiskey. I'm not bad, it's just the way I'm drawn. What? Never heard of a whiskey well? Crikey, dick! Yes, I'm going animation in 2021, so draw up a chair, pencil in this meeting, and colour me there. In the interim, if you're still interested in movies and movie history, check out the Movie Chronicles ebooks available at an e-store near you. If you like this podcast, become a pod person as a Patreon or Buzz Sprout supporter. Hmm, that sounds like I just peed you off. Until next time. Insert optional farewell message here. <laughs>